Hello everyone, welcome to the Mindful Mates podcast. This is episode 3 of our series and we're still growing our mullets and raising money for mental health research. So feel free to donate to our page, uh, which I'll leave a link to. So today we'll be diving into a potential breakthrough solution to the problem of mental health in Australia, and that solution is psychedelic drugs. I'm joined by Ashray and our guest, Thomas. So Thomas is the Grants and Volunteer Coordinator at Mind Medicine Australia, and Mind Medicine is a pioneer in promoting psychedelic-assisted therapies to treat mental illnesses in Australia. And they work with a variety of medical practitioners and policymakers to, to work toward regulatory approval of psychedelic-assisted therapies. So for those of you who are unaware, psychedelics are a form of psychoactive drugs that are well known for triggering non-ordinary states of consciousness. And the most commonly known examples are LSD, psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, DMT, and mescaline. So what got me interested in the topic was initially a a Netflix Vox video under the series The Mind Explained, and then I read a book called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan about the use of psychedelics in medical trials to cure anxiety, depression, addiction, as well as anxiety caused by a terminal diagnosis of cancer. And I remember hearing anecdotes from people who would have these mystical experiences where they felt like they had learned the meaning of life sometimes and would come out of the experience no longer afraid of death and sometimes no longer anxious or depressed. And these trials also had quite high rates of success, never before seen in other types of other forms of um, solutions for mental illnesses. What really struck me was that some people would come out of these experiences and actually rate them as in the top three meaningful experiences of their life, up there with the birth of their child and the day they got married. And as someone interested in the nature of consciousness uh, and I guess the, the variety of experiences we can have, I wanted to understand how a substance that I guess prescribed these experiences could have such a permanent impact for these people for who nothing else had also helped. And I also learned that psychedelics had a similar effect on the mind as meditation on the default mode network, which we touched on last topic, uh, last episode. And that's also something that we explore in this conversation with Thomas. We also cover some topics related to the history of psychedelics, as well as what the future may look like. So without further ado, I now bring you Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, everyone. So good to, to be with you. So, Thomas, um, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about yourself as well as how you got involved with Mind Medicine Australia and what is Mind Medicine Australia? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So um, I've been involved with Mind Medicine Australia for just over six months now. Um, and I can say it's been so much more than I could have, could have expected. Um, the organisation is well and truly leading the world um, in terms of mental health care innovation. But we'll, I guess we'll talk a bit more about that a little later on in the show. Um, but how I got involved, that was um, honestly just coincidence, if you call it coincidence or miracle or divine intervention, honestly, it was, um, yeah, just a, a, one thing led to another and, and, um, and uh, I got involved. But um, I went to a, a conference that was hosted um, at my old workplace and uh, I didn't even remember about the conference. I just happened to be in the area. And uh, so anyway, I, jumped, jumped uh, in the back row and uh, sat down, had no idea what was about to unfold, but I said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm at the mercy of, of what, um, 
of a new idea, I guess. And uh, by the end of that, by the end of that hour, that hour and a half, um, being exposed to world-leading research by, um, you know, some some of the predominant um, people in Australian society, in Australian medicine, in Australian you know, investment banking, and, and, and in Australian creative industries, um, I had yeah, well and truly had my eyes opened up to not only the need for mental health reform, but also the potential for mental health care reform um, in Australia and the world. And uh, from that point on, I, um, I made a point to, to try to go to um, any of My Medicine Australia's events that I could and went to a movie screening and, and just, yeah, one thing led to another and, and then I was employed. Yeah, that's, that's quite amazing. I think um, looking into Mind Medicine a little bit, what really stood out to me was uh, so many diverse people um, within the team there. And uh, that's, it's, it's weird because psychedelics and drugs are uh, so taboo in so many um, different cultures. But uh, looking at people from religious backgrounds and stuff, being involved with MMA was quite interesting. Um, how, how did that diversity come about within MMA? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as I mentioned, I've only been here for six months. So when they were putting the kind of the, the organization together, um, well, mostly organization together, we're continuously growing and diversifying and including new voices mm -hmm. in our, in our, um, in our organization. But, but in the beginning, um, I, I, I can only assume that, um, that yeah, Tanya and Peter really kind of um, pulled them all together. But, but yeah, referencing the people that you're talking about. So for example, on our board, um, we have um, senior ex-liberal kind of MPs, trade minister and, and a trade minister, Andrew Robb. Mm. Um, we've got um, Jane Burns, who's senior, uh, a senior um, professor at Swinburne University. Um, we've got, um, you know, uh, people high up at PwC and yeah, just a, a Simon Longstaff, who's the head of the Ethics Institute. So, but yeah, um, reflecting on the religious um, kind of implications of the, of the religious figures we've got involved there, we do have uh, the heads of um, quite a few um, religious sects and, and we definitely can include some more and uh, we hope to include kind of, you know, every um, or representatives from, from every you know, religion into the conversation and, and especially to take part um, with our organization as well. Um, I think a lot of people attest to the spiritual impact of psychedelic substances. Um, and I think that, yeah, a, a lot of religious figures are realizing that these are conversations that, that they can be engaging in as well, but also, you know, um, obviously everyone cares about the mental health of fellow, fellow human beings. And, um, and I think, yeah, they, they definitely want to make sure that people in their communities are, are receiving the best health care as well. Definitely. So is mind medicine's goal here to have psychedelics legalized or psychedelics to be used in a medical setting and what does success look like for mind medicine here? Yeah, for sure. So legalized is an interesting word because there are so many different kind of um, variations of that, of that word. Um, what we are advocating for is um, quite a specific use of um, psilocybin, which is the active compound in what's you know, collo colloquially known as magic mushrooms and um, also MDMA um, in a clinical setting administered by only a, a psychiatrist or a specialist with a relevant expertise in administering drugs, but generally a psychiatrist um, in a clinical setting with ideally a second person in the room, um, a psychotherapist helping guide the patient through an experience with psilocybin or MDMA and using that experience to address an underlying 
um, mental illness. So it's a very specific use of psilocybin and MDMA in a therapeutic uh, way in a, in a clinical environment. Uh, it'll have like, you know, really aesthetically pleasing, like a great place to kind of just relax um, in that setting. The, the actual kind of um, therapy will take place there. So it's not something that you go to the pharmacist like cannabis and you hand over your script and the pharmacist says, here's your, um, you know, your dose of psilocybin or MDMA, go home and good luck. It's, it's definitely not like that at all. Um, it's, it's completely controlled and you're in 100% supervision, medical supervision, uh, the entire, through the entire therapeutic process. So what, what does legalization look like? It effectively is giving psychiatrists access to psilocybin and MDMA to then treat patients um, with a, a mental illness in a clinical setting. So that's, yeah, that's success. Uh, for those of you that aren't too uh, familiar with what psychedelics are, maybe a for more formal definition would help. Um, but yeah, psychedelics are a hallucinogenic class of psychoactive drugs and their primary effect is to trigger non-ordinary states of consciousness um, and, and just psychedelic experiences via uh, the serotonin 2A receptor. Uh, just to be a bit specific. Um, but yeah, this causes specific psychological, um, visual and auditory changes. And yeah, it just, it just does offer that altered state of consciousness as well. Something that really stood out to me was um, how people describe what they feel uh, when, when they are under the influence of uh, hallucinogenic drugs um, is just the boundaries between the self and the world really dissolve um, and, and the feelings of bliss and unity are triggered. So that's a formal definition for anybody that's not too familiar with, uh, with, with what we're speaking about today. Yeah. So I, I think the only thing that I would add on to that is um, the, yeah. So um, psychedelics that would be referencing psilocybin and the effects of psilocybin, whereas MDMA is, is classed slightly um, differently and operates in a, in a slightly different way in the clinical setting. Um, and as a brief kind of overview of, of how MDMA is clinically um, used or is clinically significant or has a therapeutic potential. And obviously I'm not a neuroscientist, so there's probably a better explanation of this out there, but effectively it plays a part in reducing feelings of um, uh, distress or um, anxiety or um, fear. So um, as far as I understand, it works. It kind of inhibits the, the function of the amygdala, which is a fear center of the brain. Um, and for someone with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is the predominant um, uh, a mental illness that we're advocating for MDMA to be used in conjunction with treating um, is that um, people with post-traumatic stress disorder uh, find it really um, difficult to impossible to engage in psychotherapy. So I, I believe the statistics are 30, 30 to 40% of people who engage in psychotherapy with a, with a psychologist will drop out after the fourth session. So it's, it's incredibly um, well, if, uh, it's incredibly hard for those people to go through um, psychotherapy or the um, trauma associated with the post-traumatic stress disorder is so difficult to tap into that to talk about it in, in psychotherapy is, is almost impossible. Um, so what the uh, MDMA would do in the clinical setting is bring down those kind of barriers and those fears and even give the person access potentially to memories that had been you know, locked away um, subconsciously or consciously um, over years and years and years and allow the frontal lobe of the brain, the, you know, the, the higher order parts of the brain to engage in meaningful psychotherapy and, and actually um, uh, have meaningful outcomes from that. Sorry. So that's, um, that, that's how MDMA works a little bit different to, to psilocybin. So I guess for conditions like depression and anxiety, 
which is what Mind Medicine Australia is advocating psilocybin for, right? So OCD, depression, anxiety. Correct. What are people relying on at the moment for treatment and, and how successful, successful are these methods? Yeah, so um, obviously there are you know, a, a, a whole bunch of different medications and forms of psychotherapy, but um, the most profound is, um, or the most profoundly used is um, pharmaceutical drugs, so SS. RIs, selective um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and, and they're effectively your traditional antidepressant. I was literally, I was looking at the st statistics the other day because I, I thought I misheard someone when they said Australia was the, the second highest user per capita of um, antidepressants in the world. I was like, surely not, you know, like that can't be true. And uh, anyway, I yeah, chucked a couple Google, compared a couple data sets, and, and that seems to be the case. Um, so that's not in real terms, that's per capita. Um, but, but the statistics do indicate that one in nine um, Australians are currently using an antidepressant. Um, in terms of the efficacy of antidepressants, um, there are a lot of different studies showing different results. Um, but <laughs> I was reading a literature review the other day and, and it compared um, a whole bunch of different studies to each other. And it basically just said that for, for every one in nine people that were taking um, an antidepressant, they would have a, um, like a clinically significant kind of benefit um, out of that group. But the eight of nine people in the placebo group would have an equal chance of having that same amount of benefit without the side effects of the antidepressants. <laughs> yeah, and then I can see you laughing. I was laughing as well, but I, and then I was like, "This can't be real," you know. So essentially, it's useless. <laughs> well, so what, the statistics that I was reading for people with mild to moderate, um, sorry, and and this was actually um, explained in our application to the TGA to reschedule psilocybin, which I can talk about a bit later. But um, yeah, so the, the the reports that I was reading was for mild to moderate cases of depression. Uh, they showed uh, antidepressants showed nil to ne like negligible clinical significance. Um, the only group of people that it showed some sort of a, a, a clear benefit for, for, or a more clear benefit for, was people with severe depression. Um, but even then, they posited that it was just less likely that the placebo group would um, uh, exhibit signs of improvement. So that made it look like the, the, the um, substance group had a higher outcome, if that makes sense, if I said that right. Um, but yeah, effectively not very efficacious. They have a decoin score of like 0 0.3, um, which is like the lowest kind of measurement for clinical significance in, in clinical therapy. Yeah, so that, that's quite worrying. And with, I guess, the, the mental health problem in Australia getting worse and worse and you know, suicide in young people getting worse as well, it kind of highlights the need for a new solution. And the thing with psychedelics is the idea must have come from somewhere, right? And, and there is a history behind the use of psychedelics for medicinal purposes. And I know you can talk about this and in the, in the, you know, in the 60s, 70s and things like that, there was some research around it before the war on drugs and, and Nixon outlawed the use of psychedelics just for, I guess, political reasons and not really health reasons, just made people forget about the use of psychedelics and, and forget about the, the fact that it could have a, a, a real positive impact on people's lives. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think I wouldn't phrase it that they, that people forgot about psychedelics. Um, they definitely forgot about the, the clinical potential for psychedelics, um, but they, it, it just shifted, their focus shifted to um, a stigmatized perception 
of them <clears throat> in society, as probably all of us can attest to, you know, potentially growing up with a, I, I, I definitely grew up with a stigma against um, the potential for psychedelic medicines to be good in any way. Um, for me, they were, you know, merely a party drug with no other, you know, th th no one was having conversations um, about psychedelics in, in any other way than that, um, which yeah. is unfortunate. And it's, it's also quite a, um, a disservice to not only the researchers and, and mental health practitioners throughout the 20th century, but also for the indigenous cultures throughout the world um, that have been using these therapies in, in ceremonial and, and mental health practices for, for millennia. Um, and, I, and I think that no matter what, um, me personally, but we need to remember people and cultures, especially indigenous cultures have been using um, uh, naturally occurring psychedelic um, substances like um, psilocybin and ayahuasca and ibogaine for for thousands of years. So, um, yeah, I just want to be mindful of that of that consideration as well. But in terms of the 20th century and its surfacing in, um, especially the United States, the the formal um, regulatory and, and medical kind of um, uh, sphere, the academic sphere and, and the the clinical sphere, um, yeah, that that rose to prominence in, in the 60s, I believe, and Nixon's war on drugs occurred around that same time. Um, and it's horrendous, um, the uh, commentary that people had on that time period um, and why the Nixon administration made the decisions it did. Um, and it seemed like, and it was for some people, it was quite clearly explicitly that the Nixon administration had this war on drugs as a cover up for a war on its own people effectively and as a political tool to um, alienate and criminalize huge proportions of, of Nixon's um, dissenters. So the ramifications of that political maneuver has permeated the entire globe. It's permeated the United Nations uh, in 1971, their convention effectively outlawed um, uh, psilocybin um, and, and completely refuted any you know, medicinal or clinical um, benefit of the substance, but also whatever happened at the United Nations um, kind of domino affected to the rest of the world and, and all of our, you know, I, I believe all jurisdictions or countries across the world follow the same mentality that, that psilocybin is a, well, what it is in Australia, a Schedule 9 prohibited substance with a high propensity for abuse, a high propensity for um, harm and um, with no clinical benefit, which is what is becoming immediately and continuously obvious is not the case. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, definitely there is positives in the clinical setting, but um, it, uh, there's definitely also drawbacks in um, overuse and recreational use as well. People might ha have what they call bad trips and just experience something that would just traumatise them even more. Has uh, Mind Medicine really explored this area at all about maybe the drawbacks of use of psych psychedelic drugs? Yeah, of course, of course. So what's interesting is that <clears throat> psilocybin is... Um, incredibly difficult to produce um, synthetically. So you can only really produce it if you're a you know, massive pharmaceutical company. Um, I don't believe anyone in Australia produces it, um, but anyway, there's not many people in the world that produce it. So the, the only way to get it is naturally occurring through um, uh, uh, mushrooms that have psilocybin in them. I, it's not just magic mushrooms. I think there's a whole class of mushrooms that have psilocybin um, in them. So, so yeah, in terms of um, synthetically, created psilocybin there's there's never been any 
evidence to suggest that that has been uh, consumed by the public recreationally. So any studies that talk about psilocybin in a recreational setting are coming from naturally occurring, you know, stuff from, you know, just the wild with no oversight, with no regulation, with no, you know, measurements, with no, you know, it's, it's comparing apples to oranges. Um, so effectively the psilocybin that we're talking about using not only is it completely different in the fact that it's it's not natural it's synthetically created so you know exactly um you know how much it's it, its components are and exactly the effect that it's going to have and you can measure it to the exact you know size of the person and for the intended um effect and you know all, all of that kind of stuff not not only that but it's, it's being administered in the clinical setting so in terms of potential side effects or drawbacks in the clinical setting the data has shown and, and the the um trials have shown that there is minimal to no significant um, harm to the person and minimal to no chance of uh, drawbacks at all. Uh, so I believe some of the common side effects are anxiety, um, mild heart rate increases, mild blood pressure increases, um, with all of them resolving by the end of the session. So th those are kind of the, the negative effects of psilocybin in these clinically controlled settings. In terms of out there in, in the world, as I said, it's completely, completely different. But even then, it's considered, um, there was a study done by David Castle, again, in, in, in Melbourne, um, on incidents of um, people reporting to the emergency department with particular substances in their, in their systems. And uh, this chart, it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's one of the most memorable charts when you see it. Um, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a graph and it's got, you know, a whole bunch of columns and um, the, the one right, the highest, the highest column, um, which exhibited the most harm to self. So about 50% of the cases, there was like harm to the individual. And in 50% of the cases of this particular substance, there was harm to others, the most harmful drug. And it was, I think it was about 50 times um, more um, harmful to the self and others than psilocybin was alcohol. alcohol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and then you had, you know, some really harmful drugs, you know, heroin, cocaine, um, amphetamines, you know, um, coming down there, which are obviously illegal drugs, but also cigarettes were up there. Um, but yeah, right down the other end of the, the scale where you had like, I think they had like 10 or, or five or something total reported cases um, of people coming into um, or presenting with, with any sort of symptoms relating to um, the ingestion of psilocybin or MDMA was absolutely minimal. And that's in a recreational setting, you know what I mean? And alcohol yeah. is completely legal everywhere. Yeah. And look at how much, you know, harm and, uh, uh, it's causing. So it's, um, yeah, that kind of highlights the, in a way, it highlights the, um, just the complete uh, kind of hypocrisy in the current um, regulation um, surrounding drugs, but specifically psilocybin and MDMA. But again, that's in the recreational setting. And what we're talking about is, yeah, is specifically clinical. Yeah. So after all of this adversity, Thomas, it seems like Mind Medicine has been able to get some trials under undergoing in in Australia as well. Yeah, for sure. So we're um, we're super lucky that St Vincent's has seen the um, or acknowledged the potential of psilocybin in treating um, for end of life anxiety and distress. So this is people in palliative care. So they potentially, you know. Um, have been given a you know a terminal diagnosis of cancer or their you know whatever whatever it might be and, and these are young people old people um, it's it's um, just yeah really sad um, cases where where they will 
inevitably be passing away. Um, and so for these people, as you know, you could imagine, um, they're going through a lot of stress and anxiety and are coming to terms with, you know, their own mortality and, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, what has been uh, seen in clinical trials in relation to palliative care patients across the world is that psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy uh, has resulted in up to 80% complete reduction in um, symptoms for these people. So if you can imagine like your grand, you know, your grandparents or even, you know, family members, loved ones, friends to have to go from complete distress to um, kind of an acceptance and a quality of life that isn't morphine induced, that isn't, you know, just numbing the person. Um, and sorry, for, for people that, that because um, I haven't spoken about how the actual therapy is kind of staged out, but um, you'll have three sessions um, which are about six to eight hours, um, under which you'll be having a, a psychedelic um, experience with, within a clinical setting induced by the psilocybin. So it's three sessions, six to eight hours, and the outcomes are supposed to, will are demonstrating to last six, 12, 18, 24, 36 months without any more treatment. So this isn't like morphine, you wake up every day, you, you know, um, you take it or, or, or anything or antidepressants or even psychotherapy. You don't have to go once a week. Um, it's, it's three times. That's amazing. One thing I wanted to touch on was, I guess, the fact that with, with psilocybin, you're administering an experience, right? It's, it's not the fact that this, this psychedelic has a, a chemical change in the brain permanently or, you know, for a long term. It's, it's the experience itself that's making the difference and that makes it so different. And I guess when you talk about anxiety and depression and what that feels like, as in, it feels like, you know, rumination and being captured by thought and this feeling of mindlessness. So how does that experience act as a cure for, for people suffering from, from those problems? Yeah, for sure. So exactly you kind of just kind of gave an overview of, of what people experiencing depression potentially might be feeling um, and um, that you know can include pessimism and or, or, or prolific and, and um, ongoing you know pessimism about oneself and, and a lot of criticism about oneself um, but also can be um, just um, yeah negative outlook on life and um, yeah, can be filled with rumination. So specific types of thinking that are repeated um, over and over and over again um, so much. And, and potentially for, for some people, it's over decades and, and, and years that it, it becomes so ingrained that it's almost impossible to unravel or to change those, those cycles of, of rumination and, and those cycles of thinking. The so rigid what... Rigidity in the way people are thinking, yeah. Exactly, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, and that, that rigidity, and I think what you're, what you're alluding to as well is um, a connection to the default mode network, which is um, what's being shown to act as kind of a hub for the uh, sense of self and also um, a quite rigid, quite old part of the brain um, that, that doesn't really change and is responsible for those, yeah, kind of, yeah, exactly rigid, non-flexible parts of, of thinking and identification of, of the self. So for patients with, um, uh, or for people with depression, what the scans have been able to show is that the default mode network in people with um, diagnosis of, of depression um, is actually larger and more pronounced in, um, in, in those patients. So there are indications showing that this 
is is something that needs to be considered in the treatment of patients with um, with depression potentially. So what the what psilocybin has been demonstrated to do is, uh, and, and what everyone kind of thinks. Uh, I was um, listening to a, a um, presentation by Dr. Robin Carhart Harris yesterday, actually, and um, what what people you know immediately and what he immediately thought was that before doing these brain scans, that psilocybin would show you know the whole brain kind of just lighting up and you know a whole bunch of crazy stuff going on yeah a lot of a lot of activity and what they found was kind of the opposite um, they actually showed a reduction of activity in the default mode network which is the same network that i mentioned was was more pronounced in in people with depression but alongside that what it did was replace the brain's um energy consumption or whatever in the default mode network and push it out to the other parts of the brain so parts of the brain that may never you know, have interacted before. And they're like, um, there's a concept of like synesthesia, I, I believe it's called. So where you can, you know, hear colors or, or smell uh, or sounds or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, and that's supposed to be kind of an experiential kind of symptom of these uh, different parts of the brain that would never usually connect, beginning to connect um, and offer uh, uh, new pathways, new ways to think. Um, and I believe it's called synaptogenesis, which is the actual kind of what's happening in the brain. So there are new synapses being formed between neurons and, and really like actually new pathways being formed in the brain. Um, and how that affects the person long-term is kind of relating back to what we were talking about with rumination and, and depression. It allows those people then to think about themselves, um, their identity and also their, their life um, in potentially a new or refreshed ways. Um, and with the assistance of a professional psychotherapist and someone that understands what's, what the effect of these substances are on, on the individual, on the patient, um, is that this psychotherapist can help the person graft a new perception of self and the world outside of their pre-existing rumination or, or depressive thoughts or pessimism and, and, and all of that. And the, the statistics are showing, coming out of trials. Um, and I should mention, so <clears throat> the Food and Drug administration in in the united states which is with with you know you might have been hearing um is the body that's responsible for deciding whether vaccines for covid are being you know fast-tracked and, and, and that kind of thing psilocybin has also been granted that same designation um, and i believe that was last year uh, for the treatment of depression um, major depression and it's also been granted breakthrough therapy designation for treatment resistant depression um, and mdma has also been granted breakthrough therapy designation for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and what that means is that there's, it's, it's almost guaranteed that the phase three or the final trials that, that are occurring will have superior outcomes to what is currently available in terms of treating those conditions. Um, so yeah, the statistics are, are showing up to 80% remission, remission, like complete, no symptoms, falling out of the diagnostic criteria for um, people using MDMA to treat um, for post-traumatic stress disorder for, um, in psychotherapy in clinical setting using psychotherapy um, and also for, for psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, similar, similar results, yeah, which is like uh, three or four times <laughs> what is currently yeah, think, being achieved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's completely just mind-blowing compared to what we have at the moment and what people suffering from these problems have access to at the moment. Just when, when you were speaking about that, that brought up an analogy that I've heard before about it's pretty much, it's like a reboot of the system. And if you think about people with, you know, depressive rumination and anxiety, 
I guess their brains are, are rigid in the, in the styles of thinking and constantly going down the same neural pathways. And, and the an analogy I've heard is the one where there's snow and then there's these grooves created and your sled continues to go down those same grooves again and again. And then taking psilocybin is like a fresh new layer of snow where it gets to where, where you're allowed to choose and go and pick new and different parts. And that's what it's kind of doing by just, yeah, rebooting the whole, the whole neural system. And that, that's just amazing. That sounds just like some sci-fi crazy stuff. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I, that's a really, really interesting analogy. Yeah, there's um, a, a lot of people describe um, the experience in, in a similar way, a kind of reboot, a refresh, a restart in terms of your, your perception on yourself and, and the issues that you're facing. Um, and also the world. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess, how have you found the reception from politicians and other mem and members of parliament that you've spoken to and w what are their feelings about these new drugs? And so what, what, what have you been hearing from that side? Yeah, for sure. So our organization has been really well received by, excuse me, so many um, politicians. We've been so lucky to, to meet with them quite regularly. I'd, I'd meet with, you know, two plus a week. Um, so a lot of our MPs are, are really, really receptive to um, new ideas and, and um, new innovation in, in mental health care. And they're also, you know, completely cognizant of the current mental health um, care crisis. So um, they're, they're, all of them that I've met with have either been completely on side or completely uh, willing to learn more and to hear more. So not one MP that I've met with and, um, and I've probably met with, you know, 30 plus from every state, every party in Australia. Um, none of them have um, said they, they wouldn't be open to considering this further. Um, and most of them actively say like, what do you want me to do? Like, how can I, how can I help? How can I get involved? And these are like big politics. These are like, you know, so sometimes, you know, household names. Sorry. It's quite um, kind of inspiring and, yeah, I'm, I'm quite glad that we've been able to, to kind of achieve those responses from our policymakers and our, our legislators. Um, we're currently applying to the Therapeutic Goods Administration, same as what happened with cannabis, to have them, to have psilocybin and MDMA rescheduled re um, or re reclassified is the kind of what it means um, from Schedule 9, which is like the, the worst of the worst substances, as I spoke, spoke about a little bit earlier, prohibited substances. So, yeah, no clinical significance, no oh, really high, you know, potential for abuse and just, yeah, completely, you know, they have no place in society to a Schedule 8 drug, which, prohib which will allow much easier access to um, clinical trials, to medical research, um, but also ideally um, for special access schemes for psychiatrists to apply to use the substance for specific patients. Um, and what is really, really, really exciting is that um, there are psychiatrists across Australia that have already been granted access to psilocybin and MDMA for specific patients on a case-by-case -case basis. So at the moment, up until September 28th, and, and I'd encourage anyone who's, um, who's, still, who's listening to have a look at My Minister Australia, our website. Um, there's a tab under news that says TGA, um, and there's some instructions on how any of you, so anyone in the Australian public or even outside the Australian public can have, can share their voice on whether psilocybin and MDMA should be a new tool effectively for psychiatrists to be able to use in psychotherapies. And, and that, what that means is to be rescheduled from nine to eight. Um, so anyone, me, you, absolutely anyone, like you don't have to have 
um, you know, a professional background or have studied in the area, if you believe that there needs to be mental health care reform and innovation, and you believe um, that these substances may play a part in that role under the care and supervision of psychiatrists, then you can make a submission. The next question I had was, I guess we've been advising people about the drawbacks and trying not to use it in a recreational way that is irresponsible. And me and Thomas have spoken about this before, but there, there is disorders like depression and anxiety in the DSM, and then there's healthy and well people, but it's, it's not as clear as that. And there's people that do lie on a spectrum between those, those two ends, right? So is there any possibility of these drugs being used for the betterment of, of well people or, or those that, you know, don't fit into either of those categories well or, you know, on a DSM-5 manual? Yeah, for sure. So I, I think there's probably two key groups there. First is a group of people that are subdiagnostic. So they have, um, you know, potentially three of the seven symptoms that you need to be, you know, diagnosed with something or, or they have um, a extent um, of a symptom that isn't enough to be classified as, you know, um, like severe enough or, or whatever it is. So you've got a whole bunch of people in our society that, that are subdiagnostic, so they don't actually meet the diagnostic criteria to be diagnosed with, you know, moderate depression or whatever it might be. Um, for those people, and also um, for, I mean, that's a whole different conversation about, like, I think the mental health care and the diagnostic um, process more generally. Um, but I think also going back to your your other point about well people, you know, what is the potential for um, uh, innovation um, or, or mental health care innovation with the use of psilocybin um, or psychedelics in the future. Um, although that's not <clears throat> the topic of conversation for our organization, um, it may become the topic of conversation for other organizations. Um, and, and there is um, research and, and studies being done overseas um, in terms of, you know, potentially giving people a better sense of understanding of oneself or one's community or, or nature. And, you know, there's even studies being done for microdosing and, um, and, and the effects on creativity and, and that kind of thing. And um, although those conversations might have a place in, in years down the track, for this point in time, our predominant battle and our, our predominant you know, cause for being, especially as an organisation at, at My Medicine Australia, is ensuring that the people who most need these um, therapies, the people that have been, you know, failed by current mental health therapies and, and pharmacotherapy, that those people um, are the ones that that we are trying to um, address first. So, Thomas, what's being done to train our current mental health professionals to responsibly use and administer these psychedelic experiences? Yeah, for sure. So My Medicine Australia has put together a certificate in psychedelic assisted therapies, which will be the first of its kind formal qualification um, in the Southern Hemisphere and definitely in Australia. And that's being put together by a world-renowned psychologist, Renee Harvey. She studied in Imperial College and, and is one of the you know, world leaders in terms of uh, best practice in psychedelic medicine. Um, um, so she is putting together this program and it's starting uh, in 2021. So that will welcome a whole bunch of mental health care professionals and social workers. So, you know, psychiatrists, even GPs, um, we've got attending the program. Um, so it'll, it'll allow for um, people with an appropriate background in mental health 
um, and, and psychotherapy to add on to what, what their current knowledge is and um, allow them an understanding into the psychedelic experience and also how to engage with someone having a psychedelic experience in terms of uh, ensuring and um, ensuring the best therapeutic potential um, and therapeutic outcomes of, of the treatment. So um, that's, that's a, yeah, a huge um, part of our, our focus and we will be welcoming so many you know, of Australia's top mental health professionals into that course um, to lead, you know, this um, world-changing. Sorry, and I did just want to re reiterate, I don't know if I said, but, but um, we would be the first country in the world, um, reflecting on, on my comments about the Therapeutic Goods Administration rescheduling from prohibited to, to therapeutic substances, we would be the first country in the world to do that, to formally acknowledge um, the medical uh, and therapeutic potential for psilocybin and MDMA. So yeah, don't get this don't get this wrong. Like like Australia really has a crazy um, uh, 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 opportunity here. Um, but yes, alongside that opportunity is ensuring that um, there are people in the community who are or mental health professionals in the community who are trained um, appropriately, appropriately trained and formally trained in um, an understanding of of these medicines. And, and so that's what we're trying to to do as well. Uh, so, Thomas, how can people get involved uh, with My Medicine Australia? What avenues do they have? Yeah, for sure. So, our organisation is, um, as I hope I might have communicated, so um, uh, focused on including the community in these conversations and meaningfully. So, we we have so many yeah, different ways that, that, that people can engage. Um, for people um, in and around yeah, literally nearly anywhere of, in, in Australia and even New Zealand, we have chapters which are um, grassroots community-led organisations that help to put together um, like information events, informative events, awareness building events, fundraiser events um, all around Australia. Um, we've got some going on in the Gold Coast, some in Cairns, some in Brisbane, uh, and we've got 25 chapters across Australia and New Zealand. So it's a great way for people to get involved, but especially for young people as well. Um, they are an like the best networking opportunity that you will you will get in them we've got like psychiatrists doctors like mental health professionals we've got normal people we've got cafe owners like absolutely an amazing mix of people from your local community so um, even just from that that standpoint i would definitely um, and for keeping up to date i would get involved um, with a chapter um, obviously yeah up until the 28th of september um, it would be amazing if anyone in the community can put together their thoughts to the Therapeutic Good, Goods Administration, our website, go to news, go to TGA um, and follow the instructions. It's a super, yeah, really, really simple process, um, but that would help us get through world leading change and is the most important thing for the next eight days um, in, in, in my world anyway. Um, but, but it really, really should be um, for a lot of people. Um, other ways you can get involved, we're a not-for-profit charity. If there's any way that anyone has any spare money to um, spend or knows any philanthropist that might be able to contribute to our cause, um, a lot of the way we survive is from just the general public contributing to our mission. So that's another way. Um, but other than that, we have a lot of volunteers that help out with us. So if there's, um, and even a whole bunch of interns at the moment too. Um, so if there's, if you have a passion for mental health, um, social work, um, even like we've got marketing interns, we've got a whole bunch of people looking at law and regulation research at the moment as well. Um, there's heaps of meaningful opportunities to get engaged. Um, I am the volunteer coordinator and the chapter coordinator at My Medicine Australia. So um, if that is something that is interesting for you, 
um, I would love to hear from you. Uh, my email address, I'm sure we can share it on like the post or anything, but yeah, thomas at mindmedicineaustralia.org. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave a link. It's <laughs> <laughs> cool. So yeah, I'm quite mindful of, of the amount of time that we've kept you for, Thomas. So thanks so much for talking to us today. Uh, the work yourself and Mind Medicine are doing is really influential and I'm really glad it's being done. And I wish you guys all the luck in achieving your goals. <laughs>